0: This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman.
1: Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you for tuning in. Everybody all over the world, appreciate you. Appreciate you listening. Have a... Fabulous guest today, and it's a real treat for me too because I'm a huge Beatles fan. For those that listen to the show, you already know that. And my guest has co written a fabulous book on Paul McCartney, it's one of three parts, and it just is so engaging. And this man, he's been a cultural reporter for the New York Times, he's also met Paul McCartney, he's a musician. He's done it. He's lived it. He's written about it brilliantly. It's such an honor to finally have on the show, Mr. Alan Kozin. Thanks for coming on, Alan.
0: I really appreciate this. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me. How did you first get into the Beatles? I'm of that age where I was just a little kid doing my thing. And and, um, suddenly they were on the radio and on Ed Sullivan and um, and everywhere. And I just sort of got into it. Uh, You know, I remember being a little reluctant about it at first because it seemed to be something you know girls were into and guys weren't and i was i was 10 and those 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 things were important you know being into the thing that your uh, your your colleagues were um what what finally changed my mind i i really i liked the music uh was not you know that focused on it i collected the gum cards you know my friends and i would you know, go down into a basement and pick up a broom and, you know, play Beatles along to the records. Um, but there was one day I was taking piano lessons, I was taking classical piano lessons, and I was outside my teacher's house waiting for my father to pick me up in this car, a convertible full of high school students, which from my perspective were, you know, old, older, cool kids. We're sort of driving down the street with She Loves You blaring out of the speakers. And there were like, you know, maybe three guys and three girls. And I sort of looked at this and said, wow, music, cars, girls, (laughs) this is everything. And, you know, sort of decided to sort of suddenly, you know, focus more on the Beatles than I had been. Were you drawn more to Paul McCartney
1: right away, or did you start off as a John guy or George or the group?
0: You know, it, it, back in those days, it was the group. Um, and the thing is that all four of them were incredibly interesting people and interesting musicians. And so, you know, anyone growing up during the Beatles era would, uh, you know, listen to a new album and say, okay, this is a John song. This is a Paul song, you know, Uh and, you know, just sort of take it all in. When they broke up, um, I probably was more of a John guy than a Paul guy. And there's an interesting thing that we discovered when we were, uh, when we were working on the book, which is that, um, you know, John was extremely media savvy. Not that Paul wasn't, but Paul was also sort of pulling uh, into himself, trying to figure out what to do next, whereas John was out there, you know, doing his peace campaign, arguing in favor of Klein, all of that, you know, the manager that John wanted and Paul didn't, which was the sort of, you know, cause of the tension between them. Um, And John would give these, you know, incredible interviews and, and pull everybody in, and Paul wasn't doing that much of that. Um, and what we sort of found was that Rolling Stone had a big hand in how people perceived John versus Paul and basically setting up this whole John versus Paul thing that was going at the time. Um, and I think one reason is kind of interesting, um, Jan Wenner himself, the publisher of Rolling Stone, which was still a a pretty new magazine, went to London and interviewed Paul McCartney the day before Paul released his self-interview that was part of his press kit for the McCartney album, in which he basically says, you know, I don't envision working with the Beatles anymore. What John does doesn't give me any pleasure. That, you know, is a very dyspeptic interview. Um, He didn't clue Wenner in, (laughs) okay? So Wenner writes a story, files it back to the US, you know, probably right on deadline for that issue. The issue comes out, you know, maybe a week later with no reference at all to the fact that Paul had released this self-interview and that the Beatles were, to all intents and purposes, broken up um and i kind of think that winner took that out on paul subsequently you know he had he had a good relationship with john i mean john's two virgins cover is on the first issue of rolling stone on the cover of of the first issue um and i think he was trying to also foster a good relationship with paul but you know paul sort of didn't bother telling him this major thing that was going to happen the next day um, And I kind of think that that in a way ended up coloring a lot of the coverage for a couple of years. When the McCartney album came out, um, I can't remember who reviewed it for Rolling Stone, but he had given it, you know, a standard album review and kind of liked it. And Wenner went back to him and said, you know, this isn't a standard album. This is a manifesto about what's going on in the Beatles and you have to treat it as a manifesto and you have to, you know, you have to treat it as a John versus Paul thing. And so he went back and rewrote the review. And if you read the review, it's kind of interesting because he still kind of likes the album that comes out. You know, but you get this thing about, you know, uh, Trojan horses and, you know, this this album is a Trojan horse. It looks like, you know, a gift, but there's like hidden soldiers within it, you know, doing battle with John. It was, it was a strange time.
1: <laughs> and the media loves to stoke that because even when I remember watching Anthology, when they were at the height and the of their power and creativity during Pepper, they kept saying, "Guys, breaking up." We heard you're breaking up, and then you see and get back. The tabloids are writing about fist fights in the group, and the group's laughing about it. And George once
0: said, "It has a life of its own. Whether you do or say anything, it just goes on without you." Oh, that's true. I mean, and in the case of Pepper, it was because they had ended their tour in. August 66, they had decided they weren't touring again, but they didn't really tell anyone about that. And suddenly from August until November, there's no activity from them at all because they're all doing separate things until they got together to record, you know, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane, and then what became Pepper. Um, And so the press is thinking, wow, no activity from the Beatles. Maybe they're breaking up, you know, and not only that, Once they catch up with them, they've all got mustaches and they're wearing psychedelic clothes. And it's not what they remembered the Beatles as being only a few months earlier. So, yeah, yeah, you know, well, you know, the press can be always looking for stories. And, uh, you know, if you have a group like the Beatles, the question, you know, what goes up must come down and uh, together, they must break up at some point. So, you know, you want to be on top of it. You made an excellent
1: point, too, that I didn't realize fully. When the Beatles were breaking up and when they broke up, Lennon was kind of everywhere, and then McCartney went up to Scotland and, and hid, and people thought he might have died. And and as we know, he was laying around drinking too much, and he went through a very dark period. and Because he really loved the Beatles, I don't think he wanted to end them. And he, you know, he has said subsequently he wished he hadn't done that stupid press release in the album. And Lennon was furious because he felt like, no, I broke up the Beatles. I, I said it earlier. You kept, told me to keep quiet and, you know, these massive egos. But uh, that Paul just sort of starts from scratch. He does the home album and then throws a few dudes in a van and starts playing colleges. And he's avoiding the Beatles catalog
0: and trying to outrun the Beatle legacy. Good luck with that. But somehow he did. He did. Uh, It was a long time. It was really not until 1975 or so in in what will be volume two of our series um, that he begins really playing Beatles things again, except actually in 1973, Wings did a version of Long and Winding Road twice, twice in one night, actually. The first was a taping of the James Paul McCartney television special There was a concert section at the end of that, and they played it during that. And then later that night, they went to the Hard Rock in London to play at a charity gig, and they played it then. And then it was dropped. Um, The James Paul McCartney television special version was never seen. It was not chosen for the final cut. And there's no recording of the Hard Rock so far as we know. So that was one... Wings plays Beatles performance that sort of got away. Um, But otherwise, he just didn't want to do it. And in 75, he began feeling better about it. He began feeling a little better about it in 73, because in 73, John, George and Ringo decided not to renew their contract with Alan Klein. Once Alan Klein was out of the picture, anything was possible. And if if you um, look through those sections of the book, you'll see that, you know, the, the question of are the Beatles getting back together dogged him constantly, dogged all of them constantly. And so, you know, whenever we have him doing an interview, we mention that yes, and he was asked once again, are the Beatles getting back together? And by 73, he became a bit less definite about saying no way. In 73, it was, well, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. We don't know. And he really didn't know. And none of them did. And also Wings didn't. Now imagine you're in Wings, and this is your group with Paul. And now Paul is talking about the possibility of the Beatles getting back together. I mean, what do you make of that? It must have been tough.
1: And we know that he was showing up over to Dakota with a guitar and some weed and they would jam, he and John, which is crazy that they're playing. And there's that great night on when Lorne Michaels offers them to come in for like 400 or 600 bucks or whatever it is. And they're watching it and they think John and Paul consider going down there. To get the money as a lark which would have been just
0: i wish to god that had happened just to see what might have been that would have been cool yes Um, that will be i guess in volume two as well this one you know they're still very uncertain about what the future is for the beatles they 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 kind of are leaning towards you know what we did it what we did was enough now let us each do our separate things i think they became you know i think they became a, a little. Heady about it. I mean, when they were in the Beatles and going from one thing to the next, you know, from Pepper to the White Album to Abbey Road, finally, and each thing is making more and more progress and getting, uh, you you know, really greater and greater stuff. Um, they were fine, but once they stepped away from it, the idea of going back to it, I think freaked them out a little bit in terms of, well, we reached this level. Uh, Are we going to reach this level again? Are we going to, or is it going to be not as good? And they all sort of felt that way and all felt that like, rather than getting back together and having it be not as good, they would rather just sort of, you know, do their own thing, do their own albums, uh they always not always, but periodically during this period, raise the possibility that well, maybe they'll get together just to record something or maybe they'll get together, and they it, it was never really we'll get together and play a gig. I mean, they constantly had offers for that and never were interested. But, um, but there was a lot of, you know, teasing in a way. If you if you read the reports at the time, you know, we might do something, you know.
1: Also, seeing it back and just seeing the arc of it all from the vantage point of time, they had done it all. They'd been together since they were kids. It comes a time to just move on and they're all artists and creative. You just want to do something new. It's a shame it was acrimonious, but I guess it had to be or else they would have just kept going. And it was just too big. I'm. It's beautiful in a way that it just ran its course. And of course, we'll never know because of the unbelievable tragedy of what happened to John. But I would, which is forty two years ago, which I was thinking about this week. But I have to think if that doesn't happen, I think Paul and John would have done some music in some venue in a studio or something. They would never have been the Beatles, but they might have written together or done some cool thing, just because. I think time was melting the pain and they were growing up because they were so young when they broke up. I mean, their twenties, you know, basically. And so I think with time and kids, why not go and just play something or, Hey, help me with this. Uh, but we were
0: denied that opportunity tragically. Yeah. You know, in the section I'm actually working on now in volume two, I mean, he's heading towards a time when he had kind of agreed to go to Nashville when Paul was recording Venus and Mars and, uh, but instead he ended up going back to the Dakota and Yoko and didn't go to Nashville. Um, but, you know May Pang says that that he had agreed they were going to go they were making plans to go to Nashville so who knows you know uh when John was recording in earlier in, in 74 also in volume 2 i really should be talking about volume 1 uh in <laughs> In 74, he was recording with Harry Nilsson. He was uh, producing Nilsson's Pussycats album. And Paul turned up and came to the studio, and they jammed for a while. And there is one reel of that jam. We don't know how long it went, but you know, a tape reel is about, about half an hour, 22 minutes, Um, or maybe 25, 27 minutes. Um, and so there's one reel of that and Stevie wonder is in there too. And Linda, Linda on keyboards. And, um, it's just actually pretty awful, (laughs) you know? I mean, they're just jamming. It's very directionless. And, um, and, and not only that Paul is playing drums on this recording. So, and it's you know it's like you 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 get your hands on the tape and you think oh I can't wait to hear this and you put it on and it's like well this is like any bunch of guys jamming the fact that it's John Lennon and Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney and you know doesn't turn out to matter that much but I mean we're, I'm glad we have it because we know what went on but they they did actually go into a studio together and uh, and that was the result.
1: But the larger point is that they didn't hate each other, and that would have been the preclude, perhaps, just be creating again. Why is Paul McCartney, even today, why does he continue to be so fascinating? I can never not know a new fact. I didn't know John was going to Nashville. To me, the Beatles grow more interesting, and McCartney grows more interesting with every passing day. Why is it? That's so
0: unusual. Sorry, it should be New Orleans. He was going to go to New Orleans. Um, Wings worked on stuff for Venus and Mars in both Nashville and New Orleans and Nashville. Uh, So if I said Nashville, sorry, I misspoke. Um, Yeah, why is Paul so fascinating? Still, well, because he continues to do it. You know, (laughs) he continues to write and record albums and go on tour, and you know, he's still writing good stuff and you know it's changing as he grows older you know he's getting a little bit more retrospective in some ways and uh you know but but still still writing you know great tunes um and i I don't know you know not to mention you know he's he's out there at 80 giving three-hour shows you know i mean the only thing that slowed him down was the pandemic um but until that and then since then he did a a sort of shortish tour that went up to you know around the time of his 80th birthday uh and he'll be out there again and I think he's so fascinating because at 80 he's still working as if he were 30. after
1: they broke up in those first three or four years what was the drive, the thrust that took him out of his funk and got him going again? I know he had a couple great number ones, like Uncle Albert. Uh, Uncle. You know, what was Albert? And uh, We're So Sorry, Uncle Albert. That went number one. Uh, and some other cool songs. And My Love happened before Band on the Run. What was it, just a love of music, or was it the competition with John, or just all of it?
0: I think... I I think all of those things come into it. But, you know, it's it's like this. If you're a musician, and I mean a musician at heart, not just a musician as a job, uh, you have to do it. You can't not do it. Um, so when the Beatles broke up, I mean, he was a little bit lost for a while. And it took Linda really to sort of – you know sit him down and say you know you ha- you realize you're one of the best bass players in the world you have an incredible voice you write incredible music why do you think you need the beatles to do that you know why can't you just do that and it you know now it's kind of funny that that he hadn't considered this possibility or hadn't considered that he'd be successful at it and needed to be talked into it by linda um because the thing is, he did a lot of stuff even in the Beatles on his own, you know, made demos on his own. he went into the studio one day during the Abbey Road sessions and recorded a demo for Come and Get It, playing all the instruments entirely on his own uh, and took it to Badfinger and said, I think they were called the Ivies at the time still, took it to them and said, record it exactly this way, don't change anything in the arrangement so here he's he's done this song on his own at abbey road and come up with you know exactly what he wants it to be and that took him like an hour you know um but i guess you know he had his support structure cut away from him and uh and and it was hard, you know. I, I do think he that even if Linda hadn't been there to help him sort of see the light, he would have ended up getting back into it anyway because he's a musician, and you know he he had to do it. I think he wanted to compete with John, but I think he wanted to. I don't. I don't really think that was the prime motivation. I think he wanted to make music, and he wanted to make music that people would like, you know. And what that was for him was a little different than it was for John. You know, Um, John at the time was into sort of political broadsides, for instance. And Paul was not that into political music. Uh, But then Bloody Sunday happened in Ireland and so outraged by it that he sat down and wrote a song and within 48 hours he'd recorded it. Like there are no hard and fast rules with him. You would say Paul is not a political guy, and yet he did give Ireland back to the Irish. You say you would say Paul is like he's the the family friendly one. And then you know, two singles later, he did high, high, high. Both of those songs were banned by the BBC. Um, I don't think anything of John's was ever banned by the BBC. Um, so you know, Paul is supposed to be the not political, not edgy one. And then he's the one who's getting the songs banned, you know?
1: You've done such a deep dive on this and you've been at it a long time, writing this legacy volume one, or even you've well into two and three. What
0: surprises have you discovered where you're like, Oh my God, I didn't know that. Well, you know, I didn't know, for instance, that um, another day was written to be a song for a film. Let's see. uh, I can't remember the name of it just at the moment. Uh, It was a film by Brian Forbes um, who called Paul and said, you know, I I would like you to write a song for this film and it's a sad film. So do a sad song. And Paul said, yeah, sure. That's fine. You know, but I do want to see the film. So he cobbled together another day, um, part of which existed Back in the Beatle days, you you see him playing it in the Let It Be sessions or even in Peter Jackson's Get Back film. Uh, he has a bit of Paul playing it. Um, the first day, actually, Linda comes into the studio with him. Um, <clears throat> but it wasn't finished like a lot of things. you know, He's got a million started things that he may finish three years later. Right. So he picks up Another Day and he had another song that he and Linda were working on, which is the middle of Another Day, which was just called So Sad, which was the bridge, really, you know, so sad, so sad, so sad. Um, That was like a different song. He joined those two together. So he had the song and then he saw the Brian Forbes film and he wasn't that keen on it. So he withdrew the He just went to Brian Forbes and was very diplomatic and said, you know, I've written the song, but I really don't think it's right for the film. What he really meant was, I don't think the film is right for the song. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, then later put it out as a single. Another thing I didn't know, I mean, since we're on Another Day, um, he arranged for, was quite insistent on, in fact, that Another Day be released. The day that the lawsuit where he was suing John George, Ringo, and Apple to get released from the Beatles partnership agreement, um, which is something he really didn't want to do, um, but the only way he could get out of Apple and out of Alan Klein's, you know, out from under Alan Klein's thumb really, was to sue to break up the partnership and the other thing you know keep in mind this was wasn't just about like okay i don't want to be in the beatles anymore all of their royalties including his solo royalties were going into apple and he wasn't able to get his hands on them and he now had a band to pay and he had expenses you know if they toured if they recorded you know he's he's footing the bill for these things and apple has all his money so he had to get out of apple sued apple on the day that the court case began and paul had to go to london you know to be there he didn't really testify they read a deposition but uh that day he had another day released and it's kind of interesting because if you look at it as you know items on a timeline Paul goes to court to sue the other Beatles and puts out a song that says, it's just another day. <laughs> I can I ask you a hypothetical?
1: And it's impossible to know, but since you're so deep in this like me, if Alan Klein never exists, they never sign with Klein. do the Beatles break up?
0: Well, it is pretty hypothetical. Um, <clears throat> they may have broke up over something or other eventually, but if they if Alan Klein hadn't come along, they would not have broken up then.
1: I agree. I think it's a big piece. And the legal and then the other stuff, that is a big thing. And it turned out Klein, John said, was the worst decision he ever made. That's a big deal because it got into the stuff you were just talking about where they could have just gone on. And then you could even say, if Brian doesn't die, even though he's inept as a manager, at least they trusted him to a degree. And he would have just gone along. So if there's Brian and no Klein, they might have done what George said and get back like, hey, I want to go do a record. I don't want to break up. I, and, you know, maybe you all can play on my record, but I've got like 10 or 20 songs and that's going to take 10 years to come out. I want to get them out and still do this. What do you think?
0: Yeah, well, you know, and even after they did Abbey Road, they had that meeting where they reconsidered everything and, and proposed okay four songs for john four for paul four for george and two for ringo if he wants them because ringo was just starting to write and in any case he sang um so he kept those two tracks um this was a way forward that sort of equalized everything and um you know a week later John's gone to Toronto, played with the Plastic Ono Band, with Eric Clapton, Klaus Foreman, Alan White, uh, and Yoko. Comes back completely energized about doing something where he's the front man. Um, See, with Brian, you mentioned about Brian. The thing about Brian that is different from Klein is that Klein wanted to be a manager and a hands-on manager. Brian had already sort of done that, had already sort of, um, you know, checked out in a way, especially once they weren't in a tour anymore. Um, and so with Brian, they had the last word. And with the Plastic Ono band, John had the last word. So John comes back and he wants to do that now. He doesn't want to be in a group with four people where he's an equal. He wants to be the boss. So, you know, he comes back and announces that, okay, you know what? I'm leaving the group.
1: But it could be like the Rolling Stones where they've been around forever and they go do all their own stuff, which is never as good as their main stuff. Yeah, because George was completely stifled and he'd had it. So, But he could go do his album and do this and then maybe two years go by and, oh, we're going to do something and maybe not. I don't know. I always like the to wonder you've met paul mccartney a few times have you not yes i have yeah
0: i interviewed him for the times when i was working there uh and that was always fun tell me about
1: him what was the vibe and i know he's everyone said he's very you can't pe- get past the wall but he has opened up way more in the last years about spirituality metaphysics life and death goats but what was it like when you met him was and now how did you keep your composure I would be a, a kind of in awe, like a burning bush is situation.
0: well, you know, you you think that, but you know, you're a professional journalist and you go in and you do it. but i I know exactly what you mean. The thing about Paul, the thing about Paul that is so amazing, and I'm not the only journalist to have pointed this out is you walk in the room to interview him and he immediately makes you feel like, your old pals he would rather do nothing than talk to you you know uh now you know as a journalist that that's ridiculous it's not not even close to reality but he has a way of making you feel so comfortable you know um then you just have a chat you don't know? you suddenly aren't talking to one of the gods of rock and roll you're talking to a guy sitting right across from you you know on the couch so um He's very actually easygoing. And then, you know, whether that's what he's actually like. You know, everybody presents a different face to different people. I imagine people who work for him view him a different way. Uh but if you're if you're in that situation, it it's it it really can be magic. And we did the the first interview we did, um, I thought was really kind of unusually. I mean, I asked him a lot of stuff that Let me put it this way: Having read just about every Paul McCartney interview, I was kind of intent on not asking him stuff that he had set pieces. You know, I know he dreamed yesterday. I I don't need to have my own tape of him saying he yesterday. So I asked different things and got different answers. You know, and it it was kind of interesting. And another interesting thing is actually. so once it was someone else someone else interviewed him for the times and I was actually sitting right across from the guy's Carol uh or uh when he was interviewing him and talked to him afterwards. And he said, you know, he said something interesting. This was about his ballet. Um said I asked, you know, if he had a particular, you know, program in mind for the ballet of you know what kind of action and all that stuff. And he said, um I haven't formulated an answer for that yet, <laughs> so, so it looks like, you know, he he likes those set pieces, you know, it, the way the set pieces let him go on autopilot, um, but you want to, if you're interviewing him, you want something else, you don't want the same things that everybody's had. and. Um, You know, I once got a call from a a television correspondent, uh, CBS, saying, you know, I'm interviewing Paul McCartney and I'm terrified and, you know, can you give me some pointers? And I said, well, you know, if I were you, I would read all as many of his past interviews as you can and find other questions to ask because otherwise he'll tell you the same story. And I joked about it and I said, you know, those of us who follow him closely have the stories numbered, you know, 250 times yesterday. And you know. um what she did was she went to him and said, So I talked to Alan Cozen at the New York Times, and he said that you um have this uh, bunch of set pieces, you do, and they have them numbered, and I should see that you don't do any of them. <laughs> And she called me and she told me that. And I said, wait, wait a minute. You, you said that like with me by name, you said that to me? She said, Oh yeah, you gave me a great interview. So I thought it seemed to me that, you know, I mean, she owed me her raw tape, you know, so not, um, but she, uh, she wouldn't come through with it. That's really a pity. Anyway. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I would just want to do the same thing. You did ask everything that, was different that I, and things he's hinted at that no one ever jumped on about some other things. I have the billion dollar question. How is a guy that's been famous most of his whole life, and really the most famous person in the world for a long time, stayed so normal, so down to earth? So, I mean, he's just like this everyday guy who has the just an insane amount of talent. I know guys in his band currently, and off the record, they've said, he's just a delightful guy. He's a magical guy. He's a human being, but it's like he is magical and he loves magic, but he's very down to earth and it's not an act. He really is. that That's who he is. How did he not end up like the crazy child actors or Michael Jackson or other people that just can't hold the ring metaphorically that long? That's a lot of power and fame. And yet here he is. I see him riding the buses and the subways and having conversations at a diner. And he seems to thrive on that
0: yeah he does you know it's hard to know you know how quote normal a person is um he projects that and he is that way most of the time probably and there probably are other times when he see he would seem less reasonable if we were to see that side of him but that's not his public side and uh uh You know, if you're talking to the guys in his band and they say that, that's actually something. That's pretty big. Um, The guys that we spoke to uh, in the early version of Wings say pretty much the same thing. You know, he, you know, he, he has his moments. You know, he gets angry like everybody else. He gets you know disappointed or upset or whatever like everybody else um i think maybe one of the reasons that he was able to stay the way he was in a way that you know i think you're talking about like the mickey rooney syndrome for child actors and uh is that the things that he valued um From his upbringing you know that sort of seeped into his adult life you know once he got married um on on one hand you might say that you know dragging your kids around the world with your band on tour is not normal parenthood but on the other hand i think they tried really hard to see that those kids were grounded um he i think worked really hard to embrace a family life within the rock and roll life that he was living. Uh, you know, he wanted Linda with him in the bands. That was not her insistence. That was him um, because he wanted her there and he wanted the family there. And if he was going to go on tour, he wanted them all with him. And I think that that his focus on, you know, those those sort of very sort of un-rock and roll characteristics, you know, uh, family guy uh that in a way helped him keep sane just to a great degree and
1: he also moved them up to the farm they had no servants they were just trying to act like a small town family and he said when he gets into nature it kind of grounds him again puts him back in uh in harmony and he he can find his true self not his famous ego self a friend of mine cooked for him in nashville years ago when he was playing at a Bonnaroo for like a week and cooked for the whole band, catered it with her help and everything like that. And she said she had some one-on-one moments with him and he was just so nice. And one of the coolest things she witnessed, they were coming in, he was standing up at the penthouse at this hotel, they were taking him in a back elevator And when he got there, uh, the people were waiting to get off work. Who'd worked there all day, but of course they wanted the police escort wanted to usher the great Paul McCartney in. He said, "Oh no, no, no! I can wait. I'm just playing music. These people are hardworking people. Go, let them go." She was watching that from the sidelines, and it was legit. And just how generous he was to different people, and quietly donated to some things in town for underprivileged, underwhelmed folks, and. When it was over, uh, his manager, head of tour, came and gave his private number to her and said, hey, he enjoyed you. Thanks for cooking. And if you ever really need anything or you're in a bind, Paul said to call him. And she never did. But that's not
0: normal behavior at that level. I don't hear those stories all the time. No, no, you don't. And you know, even with um, the, the guys in the various iterations of Wings, Because in the early days, you know, his money was tied up and it was um, kind of difficult. They were all on salaries. And um, for the very first version of Wings, that never got to be quite what they wanted it to be. And it was very frustrating for them. But when he did Wingspan in like 2000 and 2001, he basically hired all of the former Wings players as consultants and gave them you know, very substantial salaries. I mean, that's something he didn't have to do, but he felt that, um, he wanted to sort of make good on, you know, the earliest promises. Um, so he did that and, you know, they've, they've all basically talked about it, uh, or at least to us. I'm not sure anybody else has asked them, but, um, yeah, you know, it's, this is why, you know, he's, In so many ways, I mean, just personally, especially musically in the other artistic projects he does, he's really an amazing character. Uh, And, you know, and that's why we felt that that this should be a multi-volume series. I mean, people are writing books like that or series like that about, you know, LBJ and you know former presidents and, and other people and we felt that paul mccartney deserves that treatment too um where we look as closely as we can and is, is research as deep as we can into everything about how he did what he did why he did what he did and so this first volume is like it's like 700 some odd pages and it really only covers five years, one of which was the last year of the Beatles. So we're not covering it quite as thoroughly because we're really focused on him. So four years and a bit, let's say. Um, And, and I think actually we probably will be more like four volumes than three um, because the next volume takes him to 1980 and he's lived quite a long eventful life since 1980. I'm not sure. I don't think we can get that into one volume. So, Although I went to went to lunch with um our editor at the very beginning of this. And she said, How many volumes do you think it will be? And I said, I'm thinking five. And the look of horror on her face made me say, Well, or, or four, you know. <laughs> so, but we really don't know, you know, what it will be. It's we're just, you know, researching and writing and it just goes along and now the first volume is about to come out and and we're pretty happy with it so
1: um i'm here for it and i know millions of others are going to be interested and he is a great character also on the band thing he his band guys told me he he, they're always on salary whether they're touring or not and all through covid he paid everybody exactly the same as when they're on tour and so made their lives a lot easier and they don't have to worry they have health care and everything like that you got a lot to write about. A guy gets spent time in jail. Wow, Japan. I mean, all these different stuff. When George was dying, that's going to be interesting. I'm going to read every word. Uh, It's just, and we can't forget. I think the core of the magic is the music is like nothing else. It's so timeless. And the Beatles were on Mount Olympus and at the top. But even songs like Band on the Run, or, or or maybe I'm amazed. They're great songs. And I believe
0: they will live on forever. Yeah, probably. And we're discovering, you know, as we do this, we're looking very closely at basically every track. Uh, and so, a lot of things that I had just sort of taken for granted, they sort of, you know, I'd play them, I'd hear them, they, I like them, they were fine. But looking closely at them um, has really, really sharpened my appreciation. I mean, two in particular from the RAM sessions, although they didn't both end up on RAM or backseat of my car, extraordinary piece of music. I mean, that thing is a little symphony. Um, and uh little lamb dragonfly which ended up on red rose speedway um just a beautiful song and i never really it never really focused that much on it it was but once we sat down to write about the sessions for recording it and what went into it and then what went into finishing it you know year year or two later uh you know it really just was extraordinary and uh you know, there's there's a lot of great music there that I think, we're, what we're hoping is that when people read the book, um, some of the passion that we felt for what we were listening to gets conveyed to readers who also may have overlooked it and will come away from the book with a new handful of favorite McCartney songs. Will we ever see anything like The Beatles again? I can't imagine. I don't know. I mean, you, you can never say never because, you know, history is what it is. I mean, people would have thought they'd never see Sinatra again, and then the Beatles came along. Um, and the Beatles and Sinatra aren't quite the same thing, but socially the phenomenon was similar. Um, I, you know, I would I would hate to say no, just because um, one hopes that humanity continues for many, 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 uh millennia and if this was you know i like to say the beatles are the zenith of western civ but if that's really true and western civ never you know gets beyond that uh that would be kind of sad wouldn't it i doubt it would be in my lifetime though let's put it that way You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.